preach it to you this morning. I'm excited to deliver to you what I've prepared, um, but please, before we get into it, would you join with me in prayer? Oh dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we gather here this morning under one name, and that's your name. And Lord, we gather here this morning for one purpose, and that's for your glory. We know, Father, that we are unworthy, but God, it's because of your saving grace in our lives that we're able to be here today. Lord, we thank you for drawing us to your Son, Jesus Christ, and giving us life and forgiveness of sins through him. And Father, as we open your word this morning, I pray that uh, you would help me be your mouthpiece, God, and that you would be glorified. I pray that you and you alone would be glorified. And God, would you help us as your sheep uh, to feed on your word today, help our minds and our souls be focused on what you have to say to us today, I pray. And Lord, we pray this all in your name. Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Well, if you would, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. That's Acts chapter 2, and we're going to be picking it up where I left it last time, and that's verse 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Now, you may remember when we looked at this last time, we identified that in Acts 2.42, we have four practices that marked the early church. That's four practices that marked the early church. Bear with me while I get it. It reads, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Those four practices that mark the early church are one, the apostles' teaching, two, fellowship, three, the breaking of bread, and four, prayer. And it's worthwhile noting that these four practices marked the early church because they were devoted to them. Please, if you have a pen and you don't mind writing in your Bibles, would you underline that word devoted? Because it's crucial to understanding uh, this verse and understanding the function and the life of the early church. Now the reason I want to bring your attention to Acts 2.42 and these four practices that mark the early church is because I believe that the Lord intends his church to devote, her, his church to devote herself to these four practices no matter where she is on the timeline of history. I believe that just as the early church devoted themselves to these four practices, so it is our responsibility as the present-day church to devote ourselves to these four practices as well. And most of you are aware that as a church we've come out of a series called What Does a Biblical Church Look Like? And you may remember that in week three of that series I had the privilege of preaching and I brought your attention to this verse Acts 2.42. And in preparing for my last sermon, I intended to cover off all four of these 
practices. Uh, but as I was preparing for it, it turned out that it was too much for me to cover and I was only able to cover the first two, the Apostles' Teaching and Fellowship. Well, this time round, I intended to cover the last two <laughs> of these practices, but it turns out that now two to cover is too much for me and we're only going to be able to cover one today, uh, which is the third practice, uh, that is the breaking of bread otherwise known as communion. And if the Lord wills, we'll get into what it means to be devoted to prayer sometime in the near future. So six weeks ago you got part one, today you got, you're going to get part two, and hopefully soon you'll get part three. Who knows, you might get part four and five after that. <laughs> Depends how much we cover in it. Um, but anyways, anyways, Acts chapter two. And we're going to be focusing on verse 42, as I've said. But before we do, just to remind us uh, and get us up to speed with what's happening in this chapter, what we have in the book of Acts is the remarkable birth of the church. You see, Jesus said that he's going to build his church, and in Acts chapter 2, he's building his church. Now, by verse 42, we're aware that Jesus has ascended, the Holy Spirit has come, and with power he came on the day of Pentecost and indwelled all the believers that were there waiting for him. They began to praise God miraculously in other languages, and the people who heard them were perplexed and gathered around them, asking, well, what does this mean? Now Peter gets up in the midst of all this, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, he explains what's going on. And he preaches to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in verse 36, he brings his sermon to a close, saying, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then reading now from verse 37 to verse 41, it says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had, who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. That's the birth of the church. That's what we have there. It's remarkable. And then from verse 42 onwards, what we have is the life of the church, how this new life in Christ is now showing itself and expressing itself in the life of these early believers. We read, verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. All And all the believers were together and had all things in common, and they would sell their property and possessions and share them with all to the extent that anyone had need, day by day continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all, all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day 
those who were being saved. And what we've just read is the biblical historical account of the birth of the church and then how the believers functioned together as the church. It was beautiful, it was dynamic, and it was spirit-filled. Now we're going to focus our attention on verse 42 because I'm convinced that what's recorded from verse 43 onwards are simply fruits that come out of these early church's devotion in verse 42. Last sermon we covered the first two practices, so I'll just briefly skip over those when we get to it, and then I want to focus the attention onto the breaking of bread. But it says, Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now they, who is they? They are the 3,000 souls that had just been brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, and they came together and they were continually devoting themselves. I believe that to understand and appreciate what the early church was doing here, we have to firstly look at this word, devoting. Some translations uh, that you may read may say they continued steadfastly, but it has still the same meaning that they were devoting themselves to it. They were continually devoting themselves to these four practices. Now, what does it mean to devote yourself? To devote yourself to something means to give all or most of your time and resources to something. It's to commit yourself to that thing, to dedicate yourself to it, and to pursue it, and to make time for it. And the truth is that everybody in this room is devoted to something. And we must each ask ourselves, what is it that I'm devoted to? For some people, it may be sports that they're devoted to. Others, it could be work or trying to get money or a particular hobby they enjoy. Still others may be devoted to a number of different things. The list could go on and on and on. Um, but we must ask ourselves, what is it that I am devoted to? You see, all of us spend our time and energy on something. And all of us are devoted to something. Each of us have activities in our own lives that take up our time and energy. And some of them, Lord willing, um, benefit our relationship with the Lord, but others perhaps not. And we must sift out in our lives what is it that I spend my energy on, my time on, what is it that I am devoted to? I believe it's crucial and that we must be honest with ourselves and ask that question, take time to self-examine and reflect on that question. What is it that you think about most? You see, what, what do you desire most in life? What, what are you most joyful to give your money to? You may say, well, I don't know what I'm devoted to. And if that's the case, 
Well, one practical way to diagnose what you're devoted to is to simply reflect on your conversations. What do you talk about? The majority of your conversations, whether they be with family, friends, or work colleagues, what do they naturally sway towards? You see, Jesus says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that's really what's in view here. It's your heart. What is your heart devoted to? You see, if someone could take a surgeon's knife and cut through to the very core of who you were, what would they find? Would they find a heart that's always shifting from one thing to another, focusing on what the world has to give you? Would they find a heart that's too concerned with the physical things you see and the possessions that you own? Or would they find a heart that is solely devoted to the Saviour, a heart that's well-nourished on the words of life and satisfied with handing over the reins to the Lord. You see, the Lord is always after a heart that's devoted to him. He's never after just external devotion, behaviorism, externally looking like you're devoted but with no genuine heart behind it. You know, matter of fact, he condemned external devotion with no heart behind it, for that was the devotion of the Pharisees. Matthew 23, verses 27 reads, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside you appear to be righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You see, your devotion to the Lord has to be something that comes from the inside out. It has to come genuinely from your heart. You see, in our church and in your life, you may have the apostles' teaching, you may have fellowship, you may partake in communion, and you may pray. But if we're only doing these things externally and not devoted to them out of our heart as an expression of love towards the Lord then we're no different to the Pharisees. And I don't know about you, but I know for my life personally, I don't want that. And I know that for our church, I don't want to be in a church or part of a church that externally may have the right things, but internally is cold and unresponsive to the things of the Lord. So we must ask ourselves, are we devoted to the things of the Lord? Is my heart yearning to know the Lord more and to be a part of his church? Or am I devoted to something else? Has something else grabbed my attention and my love? Let it not be that the Lord ever finds us devoted to anything else other than him. You see, the saints of the early church were devoted to the Lord and the things of the Lord. Their heart was to know him more, to fellowship with one another, to celebrate communion and remember the cross, and to pray together. And they did these things continually out of a devotion from their heart. 
You see, your devotion to the Lord isn't a decision you've made in the past. It's a decision you make every day. It says that they did these things continually. Every day we must devote ourselves, and sometimes every moment we must refocus our devotion. You see, that's the heart of the Lord's people, and that's the heart of the Lord's church, to be devoted to him. And the early church was devoted to him and the things of him. They continually devoted themselves. And you see, we would do well in our lives to follow their example. Now, the first two practices that the early church devoted themselves to was the word of God and fellowship. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. And we covered these two practices in length in my last sermon, so I don't want to labor too much on these, but just to briefly brush over these two points, the apostles' teaching is the word of God. You see, the apostles were the bearers of divine revelation and they would teach and what they taught was authenticated by the signs and wonders that were performed through them, proving that they were from God and it's what they taught that the early church grabbed a hold of and devoted themselves to. And eventually they wrote down their teachings and their close associates wrote down their teachings and it makes up what we have called the New Testament. The first mark of the early church is that they were devoted to the word of God. You see, a biblical church is a church that is devoted to the word of God. To have a right view of God is impossible without devoting ourselves to his divine word. And we're responsible to worship and to obey him um, in, in, in regards to what he's revealed in his word. And you see, the second mark of the early church is that they were devoted to fellowship. A biblical church is a church that is devoted to fellowship. A church where people give their lives and love and sacrifice to one another. Fellowship is sharing our lives together in love. And if true fellowship is ever to happen among us, then genuine love and care needs to come from our hearts as an act of devotion to the Lord. We need to understand that the person sitting next to us is equally loved by the Lord as we are. There's no partiality with God. We are all bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ and God has surrounded us with people so that we can minister to them and listen to them and fellowship to them and offer them help in times of need and serve them. We should all be accountable to one another and be able to open up to one another and not be afraid to be honest about our struggles and our failures and build one another up and edify one another. The church is, by God's design, a fellowshipping church. And we need each other. And we looked at this last time, but one of the most incredible truths that I find about our fellowship is that when we devote ourselves to fellowship, it's not only us who are affected by it, but that unbelievers are affected by it too. Our community is affected by it too. John 13, 35, Jesus says, By all this people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How beautiful is that? 
It's our lives that share and tell the greatest testimony to the people outside. And now the third mark of the early church and what we'll be focusing our time on today is that they were devoted to the breaking of bread. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. And I believe that when the Bible uses this term, the breaking of bread, that it is referring to the early believers having a meal together, but not just referring to any meal or any bread, but that's referring to a very significant meal and a very significant bread, that being the celebration of the Lord's Supper and what we call today communion. You see, the early church was continually devoting themselves to communion. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 25, uh, instructs us on what communion is and how we're to partake of communion. He writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You see, communion is a time that the Lord has set apart in our gathering together with the symbol of bread symbolizing his, his body, so bread symbolizing his body and then drink symbolizing his blood that was poured out for us to remember and celebrate his sacrifice on the cross. That's what communion is and that's what the early church was devoting themselves to. You see, the early church was devoted to remembering the cross. And a biblical church is a church that is devoted to remembering the cross. To remember the cross and to keep the cross the center point of our devotion is absolutely vital to the life and health of your Christian walk and the life and health of our church. If there's one truth that the church is to magnify and be unwaveringly devoted to, it's the truth that Jesus Christ lived on this earth and died on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Paul says in Colossians 2, 13 to 14, that you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive in Christ, for he forgave all your sins. He cancelled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And in Romans 5, verses 6 to 8, it says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for the good persons someone would even dare to die, but God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Galatians 6.14 it says, Paul says this, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, if we're to boast in anything, let it be the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ is the only thing we have to boast in. And if we're to magnify anything, let it be the cross. For it's the cross of Jesus that everything that we are and everything that we do flows from. If it wasn't for the cross, we wouldn't be here today. We would still be dead in our sins. We'd be alienated from God and we'd still be under the curse of our sin and eternally damned. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, says Ephesians 2. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God through him. It's at the cross where our greatest exchange happened. You see, Christ goes to the cross and bears our sin, and then we, we are clothed in Christ's righteousness God treats Christ as if it was me, and then he turns and treats me as if I was Christ. It's the cross that has to be kept at the forefront of our minds, and our hearts must respond in love and devotion to the Lord because of the cross. Let us be devoted to remembering the cross. You know, in Acts 2.42, the two devotions listed prior to the breaking of bread, the apostles' teaching into fellowship. You know, I can't think of any teaching that the apostles taught that was greater than the truth that Christ died for our sins on the cross. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 verses 23 that we preach Christ and Christ crucified. And then 1 Corinthians 2.2, he says that he determined to know nothing among the Corinthians except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The teaching that Jesus Christ was God in flesh and that he was nailed to the cross for our sins and that whoever places faith in Jesus Christ is then justified in the sight of God is what the apostles taught and it's what they lived and it's what they died for. And as for our fellowship, you see, it's at the foot of the cross that our deepest fellowship and unity takes place. For when we partake in communion together, we're all, to, we're all declaring the truths of the gospel together. As we come and take communion together, we're all declaring through one act that there is none righteous, not one that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God and that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, but God has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him.
Our sin is no longer on us, but they have now been transferred to the Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, it's at the time of communion that we, who are believers in Christ, meet together on common ground and we embrace grace together. We're all humbled and we all confess that we're sinful before God. And then we look and remember the wondrous work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I can't think of any greater fellowship than that. And you know, I love, I really do, I love that we celebrate communion every week. I've been in some churches where communion's not even celebrated in the Sunday gathering. So I really think it's something special to be able to celebrate communion every week here together as the body of Christ. I sure think that that's part of being devoted to communion. However, I must say that I do think that there's a trap that lies under each one of us, and any one of us can easily be ensnared by it if we're not careful. And that's the trap of familiarity. Because we do it every week, and because our human hearts are so sick with sin, there's a trap lying beneath us and waiting to just ensnare us, but we must guard ourselves from it. We must devote ourselves to remembering the cross and not fall into the trap of familiarity. The saying goes that familiarity breeds contempt. And you see this danger that we must each be aware of and each be on guard and each be on guard because of. Just because we celebrate communion every week doesn't mean that we're necessarily taking communion every week or that we're communing with God every week or that we're meeting together in fellowship and communing with each other every week. You see, we can so easily become content, contempt because we can so easily become familiar with it all. Now the Lord knows the fickleness of the human heart and its tendency to wander and be distracted. So that's why he's instituted this time of rememberance to help us remember him and his love on the cross for us. Yet even in this time of remembrance, we have to be careful to guard our hearts. We have to be careful to guard our hearts from distractions and from familiarity. And even though... We may never disown Christ. I don't believe any of us would ever disown Christ or the cross. Yet we can so easily drift into the state where the truth of the cross no longer warms our cold and familiar hearts. To devote yourself to communion means to make no place for familiarity. It reminds me of a quote I read years ago, and I don't know who wrote it, nor could I even find it when I went searching for it, so I'm just going to paraphrase it. But it went something like this. The angels look at the cross and give God their highest praise for his plan of redemption, even though it wasn't for them. 
The devils look at the cross and tremble in fear for it reminds them of the judgment of sin and the grace that wasn't extended to them. Man looks at the cross and without the slightest stirring of his conscience goes on his way, though even though the loving Saviour had his hands pierced on that cross for him. What a tragic reality it is for those outside the church who look at the cross with cold hearts. Who look at the suffering of Jesus and blow it off as myth or a fairy tale or a false religion. They look at it with cold and hard hearts. You know, perhaps even worse, how tragic a reality it is for those inside the church that look at the cross with cold hearts. How it must grieve God that when we come together, sometimes we just remember his son out of routine and not out of our devotion to him. May communion never become just a point of routine for us. May we never become contempt with remembering the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the early church devoted themselves to remembering the cross, and certainly it wasn't for routine's sake. No, they knew that if it wasn't for the hope of the cross, that rejection and damnation and hell was their lot. So they kept the cross fresh in their minds and they devoted themselves to remembering Jesus Christ, their loving Saviour, who had his hands pierced to that cross for them, who bore the judgment of God for them. Isaiah 53.5 says that he was pierced for our offences and he was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him. When we devote ourselves to remembering the cross, it leaves no room for familiarity, no room for boredom, no room for any other focus but the full and rich meaning of Christ and his sacrifice for us. Our own sin and our hopelessness in contrast with Christ's perfect and sufficient grace and sacrifice on our behalf and on your behalf, oh, that we might see Christ in all his sufferings and may it melt our familiar hearts to wash with tears the scales of unbelief and familiarity from our eyes, to somehow transport me to the foot of the cross so that I could see his cries and his agony from the cross, to see his holiness and perfection, to see his love for me even to death. Would you not love that? And through the eyes of faith, we can see all those things. We can see those beautiful truths. We can experience all those emotions when we truly devote ourselves to communion, where we come to remember him, Jesus Christ, who was slain for us. May we never come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, in a familiar heart. 
Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 29 that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And I perceive that there are many ways which we can come to the Lord's table unworthily in an unworthy way. If we come to the Lord's table with anything less then the highest reverence for God and his sacrifice on the cross and love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, then we come in an unworthy way. Possibly the most common way I've witnessed myself and others as well coming to the Lord's table unworthily is coming to the Lord's table in this heart of familiarity with contempt lying there, just eating the bread and drinking the bread just because, just because that's what we do at church, because of routine. But I want to bring to your attention today and just say how sad it is that we can so easily go through the motions without feeling any emotions and just go through the routine as if it's something common. Perhaps another way I've noticed, and I've felt myself, I'm guilty of all of these, uh, and that's coming to the Lord's table because of peer pressure. Well, if I don't take it, people are going to look at me. People are going to judge me. But can I just say, please don't partake of the Lord's Supper communion just because you're afraid of man's judgment. I don't want to exclude you. I don't want to exclude anyone from participating in communion. For if there's anybody who needs to participate in communion, well, it's all of us, but specifically it's the person who's caught in sin. And if you're caught in sin and want to... Um, distance yourself from the Lord's table, you're the one that needs the remedy of the Saviour the most. Would you not do that but get right before the Lord before you come to the Lord's table? Allow me to suggest a better way of coming to communion and partaking it rather than just out of doing it out of routine or out of peer pressure. You see, in 1 Corinthians 11, Verses 28, further on in that, um, in chapter 11, it's, Paul says that in coming to the Lord's table, a man must examine himself. We must examine ourselves before partaking in communion. We must thoroughly examine ourselves before taking in communion. We must be honest with ourselves and honest with the Lord. Take time to look at your own hearts to see if there's anything there that shouldn't be there. Take time to examine your motives, to examine your attitudes. What's your attitude towards Christ? What's your attitude towards his church? Take time to examine yourself and see if there's any 
unrepentant sin in your life. We must examine ourselves. You may remember the last time I was up here, I shared a little analogy of what my granddad used to say um, to explain what self-examination is like. He used to say that you can imagine God's word like a dock and we like a boat in the, in the water next to the dock. And so easily we can start to drift just as the waves of life go on. We can start to drift away from the dock. And most of the time that drifting goes unnoticed and it's not until we look back at the dock that we realize how far we've actually drifted away from it. Self-examination is simply looking back at the dock, the solid, immovable word of God, and by his grace we come back and we align ourselves with his word again. And that's what we're instructed to do every time we come to celebrate and remember communion together. We're to examine ourselves. Have I drifted this week? Ask yourselves, am I drifting? In light of God's word, is there any area of my life that I need to bring to the Lord and repent of? And it's the beautiful thing about self-examination and the instruction to examine ourselves is that Paul doesn't write this to exclude anyone from the Lord's table, but rather to prepare us for the Lord's table. So that we, in examining ourselves and repenting of sin, we may then participate in communion and enjoy the fullness and the joy and the richness of remembering our Lord's sacrifice on the cross. And it's quite amazing, you know, communion should have a purifying effect in our lives and in our church. Because of our obedience to self-examination, we bring our sins before God each time confessing them before the Lord and repenting and realigning ourselves with God's word, then most importantly, fixing our gaze on Jesus Christ and sharing in the joy and comfort, knowing that our sins are forgiven and no longer are we burdened by them. Each time we do that, we bring our sins to, to Christ. It has that effect on us and and. and on our community that purifies us. No longer are we burdened by them. They've been paid for by Jesus Christ and then we rejoice in the truth by remembering Christ of Romans 8.1 that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not that the act of communion has any power of forgiving sins but it, it's the aid in re helping us remember and bring to mind and trusting and putting our faith in the Lord's magnificent work on the cross. You see, the Lord sent his, 
son to die for us and to take our punishment on the cross. And I just want to take this time now to enter into this time of communion. So as we do this, please focus your hearts on the Lord. Take the time to examine yourself. And most importantly, then shift your eyes off yourself and onto the Saviour in faith and commune with Christ. If I could have two volunteers just to hand out, thank you. symbolizes his body that was beaten and hung up on a cross for us. The drink symbolizes his blood that was poured out for us. And together they symbolize the cross. Isaiah 53 6 reads. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall upon him. May you commune with Christ as you partake in communion.